Well, I, I mentioned just before the prayer that this is, this is the day for uh, a new beginning, a new season in our church's time together in God's Word, and it's one that I am really excited about. We're going to be walking through the book of Judges. Now, a couple of weeks ago when we first announced that we were going to be going into Judges, I asked for a show of hands who all had, had actually been through a systematic study all the way through the book. There was like 10 people. I'm tempted to do it again. How many people out here have ever been through a teaching series, maybe in your local church, um, uh, churches that you've been in before ours? I'm seeing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven hands, eight hands. That's not a lot. That's great. That means we have, we, we're starting something new. We're going to be turning over a new leaf for you guys. And I think you're going to like what you find. It, it, it's a powerful contrast, the book we're about to be entering into together, a powerful contrast to the last series that we've, that we've just concluded together through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Contrast in several different ways that, that really have a lot to do with why we've chosen to go to Judges. So I, th- I think connecting Judges to what we've been through together in the Sermon on the Mount will help you to see the incredible and beautiful diversity of the Bible and its material. So, so that series that took us the last seven months. was in the New Testament. This series is going to be in the Old Testament. In fact... There is is almost, potentially, I'm not exactly sure when this book was written, but roughly as much time passed between when these things went down, when they were talked about, and when Jesus came, as has passed between when Jesus was here speaking the words of the Sermon on the Mount and our own time. So a vastly different context, separated from Jesus' time by as much as, as what we're separated from Jesus, ourselves. That section, Sermon on the Mount, that was a section of teaching, this section, mostly narrative. It's stories, fascinating short stories, a collection of stories. So, so where that section, Sermon on the Mount, was more about prescription, about the way things could be, should be, under Jesus' kingdom, this one is more about the way things are. It's just description, not always celebrating the things that are described. In fact, you're going to see pretty quick that this is much more a window into the time as it was than into the time as it should have been. The Bible's not a monolithic book, in other words. And one of the, one of the goals we have as elders, as we sit down together and we plan out uh, our, our times in God's Word for the next year to two years, one of the things we're always trying to do is make sure that, that we're covering something of the diversity of the Bible's material. And as you guys know, if you've been with us very long, you know that we have a ton of turnover here, that people come and go because you come for training and you're here for maybe a couple or three years and then you're off scattered to the winds and leaving us all with broken hearts in your wake. One of the things we try to do to, to sort of concede to the fact that that's our lot in life is to be sending you guys out all over is to try to cover as much ground as we can during a three-year window. We know that's what we've got people for. And we want to make sure that we can introduce you to the beauty of the Bible and that, the, the diversity of it. It's like a library with a lot of different authors. It tells a story that has a lot of different seasons. It's full of several different genres. And we want to expose that beauty uh, in, the, in the kind of preaching series that we do. So, so we're trying to help you see the Bible is a collection of books. But we're also going to try to help you see that the Bible is just one book. That ultimately, one of the remarkable things about it, one of the things that separates the Bible from any other book that's ever been written is that despite all the thousands of years that separate when its writings were written, despite all the different people that were involved in writing these things, despite all the different settings into which these books came, 
despite all that diversity, there is underlying it one central story, one message about one central actor and what he has done in history to make for himself a people who are pure, who are righteous and holy, a people who are joyful in him. It's a book with lots of different books, lots of different authors. In another sense, it's one book with one author. And Judges lays a foundation for the story of Jesus and for the message of his kingdom. So we talked about the Sermon on the Mount as what Jesus had in mind when he, talked, when he went around preaching about the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the coming king. In Judges, we get a backdrop to that message. We get a sense of why the kingdom is such good news. Because Judges shows us what happens when you don't have a king. When you don't have a king who's faithful and righteous a king who lives and won't die. So when we, when we begin a new series like this, we like to spend one sermon giving a sense of the whole. Some of you, is probably your favorite sermon. Some of you, probably your least favorite sermon. Uh, for all of you, it'll feel a little bit like syllabus day. You know, you, those of you who are students out there, you just had a bunch of syllabus days, right? The day where you come in and you get the sense of the whole. You see where you're going. You see what the goals are and the objectives. You see the major themes that are going to weave in throughout the lectures that you're going to hear, the discussions you're going to have, the readings you're going to read throughout the semester. This is kind of like syllabus day. Here's where we're headed in Judges. Here's a sense of the whole thing so that you, when, when we get down into the nitty-gritty of it, you won't lose the forest for the trees. I would encourage you to use this message you're going to hear this morning to go back to it later in the series, especially if you feel like you're losing your way a little bit. Uh, if, you're, if you're having a hard time understanding what Ehud has to do with a, a, a Bimelech or a Himelech or whatever his name is, and what Gideon has to do with, uh, well, that's it. I'm going to stop there before I embarrass myself with, these, with my pronunciation of these names. I'm still working on that. When you're wondering what these things have to do with one another, this will be a sermon that's on the website or on the podcast that you can go back to to help you get a sense of the whole and how the individual parts plug in to what the whole book is about. That's what we're going to do this morning. I want to also quickly mention, before we get into the details, I want to mention two helpful books that we'll try to keep on the resource table back there throughout the whole series. It'd be great for you to get these and read a little bit along. They're not very long. They're not technical. These are from pastors who are also scholars of the Bible um, who, have, who have put together really useful resources. Now, this one is by Timothy Keller, who pastors in New York City. Uh, it's a collection of some Bible studies that he did on Judges. I don't know when, way back when, somebody cleaned them up and put them into print and put them... Uh, out for us a couple of years ago, and it's really helpful, really great. I'm going to be ripping off stuff from this book, the whole series. So you can get a backstage pass to what I'm thinking if you get this book and read along with the, along with the series. This is another one very similar to that. This one's by Dale Ralph Davis, who uh, is a, a Bible scholar, also been a pastor. Um, he, uh, he, it's called Judges, Such a Great Salvation. Very similar to Keller in the sense that it was material prepared for people like you who are in the church consuming this as sermons. Uh, not really looking to ace any sort of seminary exam, but really wanting to be faithful to the Bible and to how it works and understand it and all of its details, these books will help you do that. They strike a great balance. So I'm going to have these on the resource table later, and we'll try to keep them stocked throughout the series if you want something to read alongside the series. Now, I want to begin by reading the first couple of verses in Judges before we start to break down what Judges is all about. I'm not going to read very far this morning, but I still want us to continue our practice of honoring God's word by standing for its reading. If you would please stand with me as I read Judges chapter 1. 
I'm just going to read the first verse to start this morning, and then we're going to jump around a little bit more as we continue through it. This is God's word. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? This is God's word. You can be seated. What is Judges about? That's the question we want to answer this morning. And the first thing that you need to know about Judges is that Judges is about Israel's disobedience and ours. Judges is about sin. One of the first things you'll notice as you begin reading through this book is that it isn't easy reading. It is really, really dark reading. The fiction lovers among you, it may remind you of Flannery O'Connor's stories or Cormac McCarthy novel. It is dark. It's full of violence, including some very shocking twists and turns. The behavior in this book is often godless and immoral. The most obvious subject of this book is sin, self-indulgence, what it looks like when everybody just does what seems right to them without restraint. It's about the effects on people and on societies when we're guided by nothing but what comes natural to us. The story begins where we just picked it up with Israel in the land that God had promised to them. God has redeemed them. Out of centuries of bondage in Egypt, he's led them across the wilderness despite their sin and their unbelief. He's brought them to the land that he promised them, and now here they are. They've come in. All through that time, God guided them through Moses. He was not perfect by any means, but he was faithful. He believed God's word. He led God's people not as a man who was about himself, but as a man who wanted the people trusting in God. He led them faithfully, and then he died. And God raised up another man, Another faithful leader, Joshua, who came in and helped the people take possession of parts of the land. They come into this land God had promised them, and Joshua was there to help them do the things that God had called them to do. And as long as Joshua was alive, things were good. The book picks up under some of the best of times in Israel's history. But then Joshua died. And when Joshua died, it raised a question. The question that we just read together. The question that hangs over the whole book. Who will lead us now? That's a question that never gets answered. It hangs over the whole book because the book doesn't answer it. Now there are leaders that emerge. The judges, who we'll talk about in a moment, are leaders that God raises up from the people to guide them, to deliver them from those who were repressing them. Leaders emerge, but one after another they die, and they leave a void. And in that void, every time, apart from faithful leadership, in that void, the people of Israel turn from the Lord again and again and again. It follows a pattern that that for all the differences in their culture and ours, it's a pattern that should sound pretty familiar to you if you've been paying attention to yourself So what Judges offers us, in other words, is is a profile in sin, in what it looks like and in what it does to people and to their societies. I want to just quickly highlight this pattern. We're going to be digging down into it in weeks to come. We don't have time to go far today, but I I do want to at least put it on your radars. Three steps that I think show up 
in the pattern of Israel's sin as it plays out in Judges, and I think they'll sound familiar to you. In this void of leadership, when the leader has died, one of the first things that happens is that God's people forget God's goodness to them. God's people forget so quickly, forget God's goodness to them. You can see this first in chapter 2. If you want to turn over to chapter 2, I'll just read a couple of verses to show you where this comes out. Their relationship to God in, that, in those days was a lot like a rabid fan base to a head coach in major college football. It's, it's just, what have you done for me lately, right? Yeah, I know we won the title last year, but this year, I mean, come on, have you seen the offense? This is, this is exactly how Israel treats the Lord who delivered them from Egypt so recently. Listen to these verses from chapter 2, verse 7 to 10. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. That's where we started. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who'd seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So as long as they were led by people who were there, who had a front row seat to all the amazing things God did to deliver his own, just like he said he would, as long as they were led by those people, then things were good, and they served the Lord. But verse 8 says, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, all the ones who were there. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals. Did you see that pattern? What happens is that people forget God's faithfulness. They forget how many times he answered prayer. How many times he had delivered them when there was no other way. They forget the parting of the Red Sea or the bread that fell from heaven or the water that gushed us out of a rock or the walls around a mighty city that come collapsing just because somebody blew some horns. They forget how many times the Lord has provided. Their own needs become more tangible to them than God's goodness. And into that gap enters their desire to have their future on their terms. Every time they forget the Lord, they turn to idols. That's the second part to this pattern. Forget how good God has been. All of a sudden, God doesn't look like a deliverer anymore. He doesn't look like one who I can trust to deliver for me with what I'm dealing with, with what's on my plate, with what's surrounding me or in my future. And in that void, I've got to, I've got to take care of my own. In that void, Israel, time and again, They go after something they can see. Something that they they believe they can control. A God who isn't so invisible. Who doesn't operate on his own time, in his own ways, but who's subject to the things we might do to control him. That's the way their neighbors all viewed God. They were the forces of nature that you could get on your side, bend to your will if you just got the formulas right. And that sounded good to Israel. My future, on my terms, it's a matter of technique, not of faith. 
And this happens over and over again. I'm just going to read you a few examples here. So chapter 3, verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Chapter 4, verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, one of their judges. 10.6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and served the Baals. Over and over this happens. Forgetfulness of God's goodness. Forgetfulness of how faithful he's been leads to idolatry. When we can't trust God's agenda for our lives, whose agenda are we going to insert? We're going to insert our own every time. We're going to seek power and security on our terms. Judges shows us Israel doing this time and time again, and it shows us one more thing about this pattern. They forget God's goodness to them. They take matters into their own hands through going after idols. And, and when you seek power... When what you want is the future on your terms. When what you take for yourself is the right to set those terms. Then all of a sudden, other people either become resources to exploit or threats to put down. But in one way or another, you abuse. You exploit. You oppress. All throughout the Bible, love for God alone, above all, goes hand in hand with love for neighbor. And all throughout the Bible, rejection of God and the turn to idolatry, putting ourselves and our agenda at the center of our lives, always goes hand in hand with turning people into resources to exploit or threats to put down. And and, and Judges is going to show this in clear, vivid, high definition. It's going to give us shocking examples of what people who are sinful and limited by nothing but how far their power can take them, will do to each other, given the chance. A refrain that comes up a few times near the end of the book is is this. In, In those days, there was no king in Israel, right? No one to guide, no one to control, no one to channel or suppress. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges offers us some of the most powerful evidence we could ever want for how dangerous and debilitating sin can be to a people's way of life when it's unchecked. That's the pattern we're going to be looking at. Judges is all about Israel's disobedience and ours, too. But there's more. Judges is also about God's holiness. I think the most obvious thing about Judges is the darkness of of Israel's situation. That's going to be clear to you when you start to read it. But there's another theme in there that's just as central to the book and its purpose. That theme is the holiness of God. What kind of God God is? What is he like? God is the central character through this whole book. He's always there. He's always there acting, pulling, pulling things in his directions, always guiding even people's most sinister designs. God is using them for his own purposes. And his response to Israel's sin gives us a powerful window into his character and to how different he is from us. I chose to say this as as God's holiness because that's a a kind of catch-all term that we use for the ways in which God is God. 
in the ways in which God is not us, right? His holiness is his godness. It's those things that are his and his alone. He is not like us. And Judges shows that so clearly as you start to see his hand in the twists and turns of the story. Because here's what happens in Judges. Here's what, here's what you'll notice. Judges, in its depiction of God and what God is like, joins together in God things that we almost always separate. Judges is going to join together in God, in his character, in his one being, and in his actions in the world. It is going to join together two things that we almost always separate. And that is justice and love, or judgment and mercy. We tend to separate the rule-following, law-loving, stickler types, right? from the more forgiving or permissive or merciful types. Chances are you naturally lean one way or the other. Chances are you know which category you'd put your friends in, right? These types show up in our stories too. Think of Les Mis, just to take one of the most familiar stories out there. You maybe even read it. Most of us have not read it. We've actually just seen it either on stage or in that recent movie. Think of Les Mis. There's some great types here, right? At the center of that story is Jean Valjean, this, this broken man, guilty, criminal, trying to get his life back on track, looking for another chance. And then there's two ways to respond to him. There's this priest who, even though this man is caught trying to steal his stuff, responds to that situation, to that abuse of him. The priest responds by forgiving him, by covering for him, by making sure that he gets free from those who have captured him. There's one, one way to respond to people's flaws. But then you've got Javert over here on the other hand. He's the guy who's, who's just dogging Jean Valjean all through the story. He lives for justice. He wants to see right done, no matter what. It is his life, and he's consumed by it. He wants to see this man exposed and made to pay for his crime. And these are impulses we typically separate. Justice and mercy, punishment and forgiveness. It's, and it's easy to assume the same kind of separation in God. It's easy to assume that God is like us. That he leans one way or the other. So maybe you think of God as the lay mis priest. Maybe you think of him as benevolent and grandfatherly and always tolerant and forgiving. It's a common way to think about God these days. Maybe that's what you think. If so, it may surprise you to see how clearly and consistently and even brutally, but appropriately, God responds to evil with judgment. This book is about God's perfect justice. Despite Israel's choice to live like there's no God, God is always there throughout the book. He sees it all. Nothing gets past him. And he doesn't let go. He's always judging evil and oppression. The stories that follow uh, have been uh, uh, they, the stories that, that come through the book follow what's been called the judges cycle, where the people of Israel turn away from God, and then God responds with judgment that prompts them to cry out for deliverance and repentance, and then God responds with judges that we'll talk about more in a moment, and then that same thing happens over and over again. But part of this cycle is that when people reject God, when they forget Him and go their own way, when they oppress one another, when they do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord, He sees it. Every time, and he punishes it. Every time. So I read to you a few examples earlier of how often throughout the book this theme comes up of Israel forgetting God and going their own way. Just as often, 
You'll hear phrases like this. This is chapter 2, verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Here's chapter 3, verse 8. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Chapter 4, verse 2. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. And he, Jabin, oppressed the people of of Israel cruelly for 20 years. The God who delivered them from Egypt sold them into the hands of an evil and oppressive king on purpose. You can see the pattern. When Israel turns away from God and against each other, God always intervenes in judgment. And that may challenge your view of what God is like. Maybe you're thinking, though, maybe so far you're thinking, actually, that doesn't challenge my view of God at all. It sounds about right. God is the Javer. He's not the, he's not the priest. The God of the Old Testament is God of wrath and judgment. He's quick-tempered and severe, maybe even primitive. Is that what you think about God? If so, then you'll be surprised by this. Just as consistently as God responds to Israel's sin with judgment, just as consistently he responds to Israel's oppression with mercy. When Israel is weighed down by what they've done to themselves, by the oppressions they've brought on themselves by their rejection of the only one who could protect them, Every time they cry out to the Lord and he hears them and he raises up someone to deliver them. The book is called Judges because of a a group of figures that come up all throughout the book in response to Israel's need. They're called Judges in the book. Our mind immediately goes to somebody sitting behind a bench making decisions, good or bad, about laws and how they should be implemented. Well, that's not exactly what it means here. Here, the, here, this word, as it's being used, is more about a deliverer or a savior. Chapter 2 is one of the first places that this pattern comes up. and You can see the connection there in verse 16. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. One after another, God raised up men who, though they were flawed... Though they were not guys you wanted to be like, typically, they were used by him. And that's the point, friends. This book is sort of like a collection of hero stories. Some people have described it that way. Where the guys themselves are the point. Or you read it like a collection of short stories about these really interesting figures and the twists and turns of their lives and how, how, how they helped Israel when Israel was down. But behind it all, it's not about these guys at all. It's about the Lord who raises them up, who takes these weak men who barely even believe and uses them to save his people. God is the actor. He is the deliverer. He's the one who acts with mercy. The one and only hero in this book. He's the one who sends oppression. And he's the one who sends deliverance. Every time. Same God. He's holy. He's not, he's not like us. He combines things in his character that we would separate out. He won't be flattened or typecast in the way that we're tempted to do. He won't fit our categories. It can be difficult for us to reconcile God's judgment of sin, a judgment that that can mean oppression and pain and death, and God's love and mercy. It can be difficult for us, but this book is not going to let us off that hook. It's going to smack us in the face every week. 
over and over with this tension between God who must punish sin and God who always responds to repentance with mercy. I've said this before. I'll say it again here. God won't respond to the Steven Seagal treatment we would give him, right? We would, we would make of him this guy that only ever plays one role, you know? Only ever action all the time, you know? Explosions and gunfire and, and, and heroic deeds. Only, only one thing all the time. You, you would never cast Steven Seagal in a romantic comedy, would you? We would, we would do that to God. The Bible won't let us, not only take it seriously. He will not be typecast. He is not like us. He is holy. And this book is a window into his holiness. He won't let us reduce him like we would do with our idols to put them on our terms and enroll them in our service. He is his own. This book is about Israel's disobedience and ours and it's about God's holiness. But it's also about one more thing that I'm just going to mention here and then unpack from now until the end of the year. Judges is also about Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. So I mentioned that there's this cycle that happens over and over and over again in Judges. And the people reject God. They are punished for their sin. They cry out for, in repentance. God delivers them through a judge. There's peace and rest. Then the whole thing starts over again when the judge dies. It's a cycle. We're going to talk a lot more about that in weeks to come. But as one other commentator put it, it's actually not really a cycle. It's more of a spiral. It goes more like this. And as you get through the book, the further into the book you get, the worse things become. The final chapters don't even include judges at all. They're just a zoomed-in view of what sort of things Israel was up to during this dark time. There's a story of a man forging idols for himself, for his own household, and appointing his own priest just because he wanted to, as if he had the right to engage God like that. There's a story, one of the most brutal in all of the Bible, of a horrifying sexual assault. That's the end of Judges. A three-chapter tale of sexual assault. Judges is a horrible portrait that ends horribly. It ends without light in one sense. Put another way, it raises questions that it doesn't answer. Judges raises questions, fundamental questions, that it doesn't answer. Judges sets up what happens next. There are two questions I want you to write down and think about as we move through this series. Question number one. How can God show justice and mercy at the same time? Are his promises, this is part of the first question, his promises conditional? Do they depend on our obedience? Or are they unconditional? Are they just based on his steadfast love? How can God show justice perfectly and also show love relentlessly? Only in Christ, who by his blood fulfilled the conditions that God's promises demand, but who was God himself 
fulfilling the conditions that he imposed. Only through Jesus can God be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Judges is about Jesus because it's about the perfect justice and the relentless love that had no recourse but to come for us. Here's another question. Who can lead these people? Who can lead us without leaving us all alone in the end? Judges is about what happens when there's a leadership void. There was always a leadership void because these leaders just keep dying. And when they do, things go right back to the way they were. Who can establish a kingdom? Who could serve as a king that won't just die and leave us alone in the end? That question drives the stories of David. It drives so many of the songs that the people sing through the Psalms. It drives the promises of the prophets and it's in the mouth of Jesus when he comes announcing a kingdom that is here in him. It's what Jesus had in mind in John 10 when he described himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep but who lays down his life in order that he may take it up again. He lays down his life so that he can take it up again. And who goes to prepare a place for his people. And who doesn't leave them alone in the meantime, but sends his spirit to guide them all the way home. Judges is about Jesus because it shows us what we need is a leader who won't leave us. And it adds a whole new dimension to Jesus' promise not to ever leave us or forsake us. When you read Judges, you can read Romans 8 in a whole new light. And I'd encourage you to do it. We're going to do it together. And I want to pray that God will help us step by step all the way through. Father, we do pray that you would overcome our distractions, overcome our, empath- our, our, our apathy, and overcome the rebellion that's in our hearts, maybe even unnoticed, that keeps us from wanting to hear what you have to say and responding to it with humility. I pray that you would overcome the obstacles we put in ourselves to hearing your word and being shaped by it. And that through these stories, through the good and the bad, you would help us to see Jesus and to love you more deeply than we do right now. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.